I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. What I'm interested in and what the computer can never do, the robot can never do, these empathy machines that are being built can never do, is give you the feeling that I'm here for the duration to keep trying because I've had human experiences too and loss and pain and and I'm going to try to relate mine to yours. Say I'm not anti-technology, I'm pro-conversation. Sherry Turkle knows her stuff when it comes to conversation. She has a joint doctorate in sociology and personality psychology from Harvard University. She's an expert on culture and therapy, mobile technology, social networking, and sociable robotics. She's an advocate for more and better conversation. And she's an awfully good conversationalist herself. This is so great to be talking to you because... You know that I talk about all the stuff that you've spent decades studying. And I'll tell you what, the the main reason that I'm so happy to be talking with you is that we never call these interviews. We call them conversations. And you're the queen of conversation right now in our culture. I'm very excited to hear you say that. <laughs> well, you, you really stand up for conversation. And you show us in ways you've studied the problem, how important conversation is, and we're sort of surrounded by some by devices that hold back conversation. I think so. I think that's the biggest danger of these devices at the end of the day. I forgot my iPhone today on my way here. Uh-huh. I had a moment of panic. Yes. I had to choose between being late uh-huh. or being on time without the iPhone, and uh-huh. I almost chose being late to get the iPhone. <laughs> I know. I, well, I've had that experience, too, where I'm, 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 I'm going someplace where I know I don't need the iPhone, and I don't have it, and then all of a sudden, like, I need to have it, and then you say, well, you know, why do you need to have it? You need to have it because you're used to having it. But in fact, I think moments like that are good because they force us to you know, realize that you can do without it and uh, to also accept our dependence on something that we really don't need and that we do better if we but don't we have. feel like we've come to need it. I described it as a moment of panic. Yes. And it kind of was a moment of panic. It's like I have so much of my life in that. Not, and I ne- almost never make a phone call. It's right. ironic that it's called the phone. Yes. Well, I see this as an arc, uh, an arc that's moving very quickly. Um, it's very early days with this technology. And at first, there's the infatuation. Yeah. Everybody had to have it. We're at this point where we need it. Everything's on it. We can't do anything without it. And then you see that in Silicon Valley, people hire nannies to to watch their children to make sure they have zero time on the phone, zero time on the screen. And the nannies are supposed to be there without their phones. And the phones, nannies can't have their phones. So the most sophisticated people are now on a zero tolerance, treating it as though it's crack cocaine, it's a drug, it's the worst thing the, in the, the world. The very people who are bringing us this technology. Yes, well, that's why I think it's an arc. That first comes the moment of infatuation, then comes the moment of it's the biggest danger in the world. Mm -hmm. And the place where it now is to realize that 
this is something that we just need to get control over. Because in fact, uh, to give it to children as the go-to object so that they don't develop the capacity for boredom, but instead run to their phones, that is a real danger. That's not a made-up danger. That's not a, a fake thing to be nervous about. One of the things that I learned talking with scientists on the the television show Scientific American Frontiers was this idea of the default state of the brain. And um, apparently boredom is very useful um, because we tend to go into the default state where things, uh, you'll, you can describe this better than I can, I'm sure, but the idea is that creative impulses thrive in this default state where we think we're doing nothing, we think we're thinking of nothing, but the brain is roaming and roving. And it seems to be a very important part of being alive and coming up with solutions, uh, coming up with new ways of thinking and behaving. Actually, the default mode network does more than that. It's the time, uh, it's the process during which the brain lays down a kind of stable sense of the autobiographical self. What, what does you mean by that? Uh, who, who, who was I? Who am I now? Hmm. What's my future? Kind of lays down a... So this is conscious uh, or unconscious? No, unconscious. 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 I mean, yeah. in other words, that, de- that default work doesn't yeah. just include creativity. Uh-huh. Part of that creativity is also the creativity of your selfhood. And who right. You, and, right. So in a way, it's getting in touch with yourself. Yes. And if, if we reach for the phone when we sense, oh, here comes boredom, we're denying ourselves apparently this very valuable age-old human function that the brain wants to exercise in those moments that seem like nothing's happening. Absolutely. And to be able to put down the phone so that you can have a genuine moment of solitude where you learn to look into yourself and get to know yourself. There's a wonderful experience, uh, there's a wonderful expression in the psychoanalytic literature that if you don't teach your children to be alone, they'll only know how to be lonely. Uh-huh. In other words, you need to have that capacity to be with yourself in order to, you know, to look to another person as a separate person, as somebody different that you can have a relationship yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, we, we and, often hear you, exactly. you, you have to love yourself. But first you have to find yourself interesting. Exactly. And you don't find yourself interesting unless you spend time with self. Exactly. But what about the idea that we're addicted to these devices? Are we addicted in your opinion or not? What about uh, my moment of panic today when mo- I left well, my know, phone at home? You know what? Your mo- uh, did you leave your phone at home? I don't have it. Well, good for you. You don't look so bad to me. <laughs> you look pretty. You're looking pretty good. You're talking to me. If this is withdrawal, I think. And 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 there and there we're answering the question. In I'll other be words, okay as long as you ding every few seconds. Exactly. <laughs> I remember so many wonderful conversations with my grandkids when they were little yeah. in the back seat of the car. And we're, both of us are talking into the air, yeah. but we're making contact in an unusual way. 
that we wouldn't if we were just sitting in a living room together. There, there, there was a freedom to free associate, yes. talk about what's out the window. Yes. And things would come up that were surprising and, and fun. Yes. And if this was before everybody had a phone to play games on. Right. And there's that sense of a shared space. I think that's one of the things that's come out uh, so poignantly in my research is that when you go to your phone, you're basically saying, I'm leaving the shared space. When you asked me if I wanted to put on headphones before Mm -hmm. we began the interview, and I said, well, what's the difference? And you said, well, if you put on the headphones, you have a little more of a sense of being in the bubble in the conversation with me. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Is it true? Does it happen that way? Yeah, I think so. That, 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 that when you're not on, when you, when you take out a phone, you, you aggressively leave the common space of the people you're with. There's a wonderful experiment. This was a turnaround experiment for me where if you're at a a table, it could be a kitchen table, it could be a lunch table and a business meeting, and you put down your phone turned off and face down on the table, two things happen to the conversation. It becomes more trivial in its content and the empathic communication between the two people becomes less. Even if the phone is turned off and turned face down, that, that, that's sort of amazing. Just the presence of the phone, just the it, presence it's some of kind the of phone symbol to your unconscious of all the elsewheres you could be. That mm. you're out of the bubble of yeah. presence to the other. Yeah, the person. opposite of what we have now with these yes. headphones, and it's we're the tuned into of, each other. Yes. The and the other thing, empathy. I um, really enjoy. We talk a lot about empathy in our conversations yeah. on, on this show. And you, you—I've heard you say some really amazing things about empathy. Uh, there's a study over a 10-year period uh, that included the years of the introduction of the phones, mm. and in that time, over uh, 30 years, there was a 40% decline in standard measures of empathy in that period, and most of the decline. And empathy took place in the final 10 years, which were the years of the introduction of the technology. Mm. And the, the, the head re- principal researcher was so upset by this, had a conversation with her, a great researcher named Sarah Conrath, and that she immediately set herself the task of writing empathy apps for uh, the iPhone. Yeah. Can you do it? Well, I mean, that's the question. Can well, you can you increase someone's empathy with an app? And 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 sort of almost philosophically, if you if you feel that the problem is that kids are looking at screens, <clears throat> yeah, and losing empathy, can you fix that with an empathy app? Ex- well, it's a good question. It's a good question, and I think that this really is part of the is kind of the the place that we're at and the conversation we need to have. Because I teach at MIT where the philosophical position is that if there's a problem that technology has created, Hmm. technology will find the solution. Let's look to technology to find the solution. So far, though, I agree with what I think I heard you say, which is the ultimate empathy app is another person. Yes. And my, my belief is that we are the empathy app. They're talking like this. This is the empathy app. 
Okay, so maybe apps are not so good for teaching empathy. But I asked Sherry, what about if we're confronted by a much more sophisticated thing like a social robot, something that seems to have empathy? Well, this is something I feel strongly about, and I think the burden of proof here is uh, is on the side of people who want us to be intimate with objects that have no empathy, mm-hmm. uh, these pretend empathy machines. So it's a little bit like where we were with marketing iPhones, where the people who were building the phones knew that they were creating devices that would be addictive, were building things into the devices that mm-hmm. would be addictive, and did it anyway. Yeah. At knowing that this really would not be good for people. Because it was business. Well, right. It's, it's why It's why Coca-Cola is said to have put cocaine exactly. in their early uh, exactly. products. So then there was a cycle, and it was found out, and you had to walk it back. So now there's a cycle, and the, and the tech companies are trying to walk it back a little. But instead of going through that cycle with this, with this notion that we're going to have dolls for children that pretend that they are real people and have real emotions and real empathy to offer and, and instead have pretend relationships with children, um, why not show a little common sense from the start and say that, ask the question, what is the universe on which it is good for a child to have uh, a pretend empathic relationship with an object? Well, don't they anyway? I'm, this is this, no, this they is don't. A, this, I, I, this is I, it's not the same as having a relationship with a doll. Mm-hmm. When you when a child has a relationship with a doll that they see as an imaginary friend, mm-hmm. that the object is inert. The doll is inert, and the child projects onto the doll mm. their own needs, their own. Fantasies, right? Right. So, so that, you don't you don't get fake feedback. Exactly. So that a that a that a little girl who has just broken her mother's crystal will put her Barbies in detention, hmm. and when she puts them, when she punishes the Barbies, she's working through uh, her own feelings of guilt and wanting punishment and punishing the Barbies and talking about why she did it and. And in fact, this is the basis of child uh, psychotherapy, therapy with children, right. is having them play with doll houses and dolls and letting their imaginations play. That's very different than a Barbie that comes out of the box and says to the child, a robot Barbie, that says, hi, I'm Barbie. I have a mom and a sister, and I am a little mad at my sister and my mom. Are you mad at your mom? Are you mad at your sister? Well, what does that do? What? How do we know that's bad? Well, First of all, it's it, it puts the child into a play space of what I'm calling an as-if relationship, mm-hmm. which is never good for any of us to be in relationships that are simulations, in, in a sense, of, of real relationships where, where there is no real emotion and real feeling and real connection happening. Because there is no real mother, there is no real mm. sister. Sounds a little like emotional pornography. Well, I don't want. It stands I, in for something it, that, it, it, that it, it, can't uh, can't do. You can't you can't go any place with it. So if the child says, "Yeah, you know, my my, my mom." 
my mom doesn't understand, da 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 the Barbie has nothing to offer since the Barbie has no, I mean, so then the child is, is kind of, is in this is in this halfway zone between nothing and nothing, and to what purpose to sell it to sell it to sell a doll? Yeah, well, the idea that it could be destructive, and to sell the doll before you dis- and not check into whether it's destructive or not before you have a bad effect on millions of children is not a good idea. And and uh, it's it's and then what are you going to do when the when the child says to the Barbie? You know, actually, I'm mad at my uh, father because he touched me in a bad place. Mm. And then the child feels as though they've said something important. Yeah. And that needs a response. The child has shared something that desperately needs a response. Barbie's not yet ready to. Barbie, Barbie's like this robot. You know, this is how I spend my days is playing through this scenario and trying to make it come out in a happy place. And I cannot make this come out in a happy place. Well, I can imagine it's on the one hand, thinking about this a lot is exciting. And on the other hand, depressing because you're, you're, you're talking to the ocean to a certain extent. I mean, it's a vast, a vast body of water that's been set in motion by industries worth billions and billions. I don't feel that way because look at how quickly we've gone from everybody needs to have a phone, every eight-year-old needs a phone, every five-year-old needs a phone, to, you know, phones are bad for kids. Mm. Yeah. I think that actually um, what you need to have in this business is tenacity, um, the right question. And I think the right question is, what human purpose does this serve? What is the human end game? Are there... And if you have that question and you just keep saying, love the technology, you're just a genius, it's very smart, it's very clever, what is the human end game? I, I'm, I'm thinking of a demo at MIT that was uh, very, many years ago where they were showing how great this new Internet of Things was. And, um, <laughs> I, I, and, the, and the demo showed how using the Internet of Things, you could order a coffee, like a macchino frappuccino, you know, really a complicated coffee. And on your phone, you could get to the Starbucks, let's say, without passing your ex-spouse, your ex-girlfriend, anybody who you'd ever had a fight with, because your phone would, like, know who you were, you know, trying to avoid. So you could, it would, like, make a route through Cambridge, you know, to get you to the Starbucks without. And it occurred to me that the technological culture that I was living in had this value system where it just was obvious that vulnerability and conflict and emotional conflict mm. was something that definitionally you were trying to not, um, not have, experience, not yeah. experience. And that's what technology was for. It was to create this friction-free, and the expression that, the, that, that was used was that the Internet of Things would give you a friction-free emotional life. Yeah, a friction-free life means as, yes. as soon as you experience some friction, you're devastated by it. Well, and that you didn't have thing. to have that. And you don't get the other advantages of friction. Yeah, but I was very struck by the, you know, 
technology's values reveal themselves in these ways when they present you with a product and everybody was saying, oh my God, so cool. It's like Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. You know, I can like, <laughs> I can like get to, I can get to where I want to go and I never have to have like a, you know, like a, a vibe and um, that's negative. And then I thought, well, what is this model of life where everything, you never have to have a negative thought, you never have to confront a person, you never have to learn how to say, I'm sorry, you never have to learn how to apologize, you never have to... And, and in meanwhile, your refrigerator is spying on you. Yes. I try desperately to think of some kind of an app that can help us connect better to one another. And Sherry sort of liked one. Sort of. When we come back from this break. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness Movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Sherry Turkle. There are companies, I think, trying not, not so much to engender empathy, to, to build up your empathy, but to point you toward a social interaction. Does that sound like a good idea to you? No. Because there's no social interaction. The point, you, social interaction, saying, oh, it's not an empathic interaction, it's just a social interaction. That's not how human beings work. Mm -hmm. When human beings have social interactions that aren't empathic interactions, we say they're autistic. Mm -hmm. I mean, when people come in and sort of go through robotic moments of social interactions right. without making eye contact, without feeling something for the other person, without we say that there's something wrong with them. So is that what we want to train? We want to train people who can have social interactions without there being human connection? Again, well, if, you, if, if you have it, I guess all I'm trying to say is if, if there's an app of some kind whose sole purpose is not to get you to use the app more, but to actually get you to relate to another person in a human human way, that sounds like it might be a good idea, a way to help wean us off the devices. So the point of the app is to wean you off the app? Maybe. 
Well, I'd have to see it. I mean, I've seen some apps that are interesting, like, for example, apps. I mean, you know, not every app that has a social interaction with a human, a quote, social interaction with a human being, you know, is makes me want to run screaming from the room. So, for example, there are apps that run people through um, simulations of job interviews. Mm. I think those are very interesting. That does sound interesting. That's interesting. So, you know, 50 You've had the job interview 50 times uh, before you actually sit down with the job mm-hmm. interview or situations that are fairly, uh, you know, particularly for people who haven't had a lot of social interactions where really just the just the experience of and they correct you, you know, just the experience of what's expected in the hello, mm-hmm. what's expected in the this, what's expected in the that. Social interactions that I would say are fairly stereotypical where they're not the interactions where we're looking for complex connection or deep connection, but fairly stereotypical ones where you're encouraged to share things about your work and your resume and your vita and and kind of do a self-presentation. However, the more we talk about it, the more I am reminded of the fact that saying the right things Mm -hmm. is not nearly as important very often as how you present yourself, how you present yourself in your regard toward the other person. Absolutely. What I'm interested in and what the computer can never do, the robot can never do, the empathy app can never do, these empathy machines that are being built can never mm-hmm. do, is is give you the feeling that I'm here for the duration to keep trying because I've had human experiences too. Mm-hmm. And loss and pain and, you know, I've, I've kind of gone through illnesses and mothers and fathers and, you know, I, I've, I've kind of gone through some things and I'm going to try to relate mine to yours. In addition to that, it seems to me empathy happens when I have a feeling for what's going on inside you. That it's, I'm not just listening to the words you say. Mm-hmm. I'm getting under that. Mm-hmm. And I partly I get under that by looking you in the eye. It's, I see these subtle changes in your face as you listen to me. Mm-hmm. And I have a view of you that's much more from your point of view than it, than it was before I mm-hmm. started looking so carefully. It's uh, best done... In person, it's best done in a conversation. It's best done by looking. I think it's best done in the presence of the body. I think that Mm. empathy is something that, um, again, we are most human when we have our bodies in the game. So what about connecting with each other on FaceTime or Skype or... It's great if you if you put it in its place. I mean, I'm not anti-technology. I like to say I'm mm. not anti-technology. I'm pro-conversation. Right. So if you're... But are we, can we have a conversation on the screen that's as valuable as a conversation where we're body to body in the same room? No, it's not the same, but it doesn't mean that it's bad. Mm-hmm. In other words, I think, I think we have to get out of this at some point 
we got into this. Does is it as good? Is it better? Is it ninety percent? It doesn't have to. Be, we don't have to judge it. We got we have all of it. It's a different experience. You, you talk about things being you know, these these uh, digital experiences being considered good enough. Yeah. Like what's an example of a good enough experience? My favorite one is um, I did a study of people and their robot dogs. You know, so, I, don't, I don't know much about robot dogs. So, How do they work? Well, they kind of, you know, they, they program. So first they're a puppy, and then you teach them, and they become, you know, they learn. Uh. And they, they, they're, they're really sophisticated artificial intelligences. And so they you can teach them tricks, and they learn to recognize you. And, they, you know, they from puppified to dogified, and then they're more mature dogs. They know a lot of tricks. They recognize you as the owner. They But, but they sleep. don't require you to train them not to pee on the rug? No, they don't. But they, but they pretend to pee, you know, they, they do all kinds of stuff. So I did the study of uh, people in nursing homes and the robot dogs and families and buying robot dogs for their grandparents. And anyway, it began with people saying things like, well, I'm going to get my grandmother a robot dog because it's better than nothing. She uh, can't have a real dog because yeah. she's allergic. Uh. And then it was, well, it's better than something in some ways because it doesn't pee and she doesn't have to take it walking. And then all of a sudden, it's better than anything (laughs) because it will never die and make her sad. So the first time I saw this pattern, I was like, hold on a second. And then all of a sudden, I realized that this, in fact, is a pattern that we have with technology. It starts off the argument is, listen, this robot dog, it's just better than nothing. This robot babysitter, it's better than nothing. This robot that'll read to your child, it's better than nothing. And then all of a sudden, it becomes better than anything that a human being can mm. provide. And I think that's where I think it's very important to recognize this tendency that we have to start to glorify the digital, to start to glorify the technology until the, the technology becomes better than anything we can provide for each other. Is that ever going to be possible? I mean, I, the, the, the question of whether or not machines can feel ever has been one that has been debated since machines started to try to learn. But that doesn't sound to me like the important question. The important question is, can we actually relate to a machine as though it f- was feeling in a way that didn't hurt us but helped us? I think it's, it's more kind of psychoanalytic question for us. Like, why why are we so stuck on this? Why can't we make ourselves in this in this very dark time for the for the human race when we we're showing such an inability to care for the earth, such an inability to care for each other and be kind to each other. Why can't we focus on our human questions uh, and, 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 and increasing our, and thinking of how we can use machines to increase our empathic potential for each other and work on that. What machines can help us increase our capacity to care mm-hmm. for each other, mm-hmm. as opposed to worrying about can we get machines that will love us more than we can love ourselves. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that there's some kind of displacement of where our real problems are now. It's not about AI. 
It's about how we're using AI. It's about how we're using artificial intimacy, not to think about human Mm. intimacy. AI now meaning artificial intimacy. intimacy, Right. We're using the new AI is artificial intimacy. We've gotten artificial intelligence as though yesterday. Now we're using, now we're into artificial intimacy. So it sounds like you're saying that you're studying how conversation can be an antidote. Yes. I think conversation is the talking cure, as Freud would have said. Mm. I mean, because in conversation, you realize, you know, in this conversation, you realize just, you know, even in just a a simple conversation between two people who are trying to understand each other and kind of get to a shared space together, you realize, God, this is great. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, as soon as you hook up with another person, yeah. you think, well, where's how long has this been going on? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> this is like amazing. You know, this is like really, this is excellent. Uh, uh, why was I avoiding this? Why, yeah, like, what, can, can we, why don't we teach our kids in school? Why, why are all these kids in schools being issued, uh, spending all day looking at screens? Yeah, can't we yeah. Get them, can't we get them doing this? That's why I want to spend some more time introducing the idea of improvisation training in schools because Wonderful. the essence of that is connecting to the other person. Absolutely. And and even short of that, just getting kids to converse. Absolutely. What do you I mean we're talking about conversation as, as maybe the defense against these bad uses of technology. What how would you in really simple terms, how would you describe good conversation? What makes for good conversation? Listening. Yeah. Right. Listening. Yeah. Just listening. That's why I think the, uh, the the association to improvisation is so excellent, because when you watch people Im- improvise, the, the, they, the entire exercise is listening. One of the basic ideas in improvisation is the notion of yes and, which is yeah. now entering the culture when I'm, I'm glad to hear it, because when you say no to whatever the other person has said, that's canceling them out. Whereas, yes, and is to say, yes, I I get that what you're saying. And this maybe goes on top of it, or maybe it doesn't, but it adds to what you're saying, rather than dismissing what you're saying. And that seems to me to be an essential, because how am I going to learn where you are in your thinking and your feelings, unless I acknowledge what I'm hearing from you? Absolutely. And then together we can make and up. Because if I do an and at you, you can do a yes and back to me. Right. And we're getting someplace that neither of us thought we were going to go. Right. I think this is what children should learn in school. I mean, in other words, because what they learn from screens, no matter how brilliant the content, and again, I'm not criticizing the wonderful content that people are putting on screens, the imagination of it. I mean, some of it is, I mean, it's awesome. But it doesn't, it doesn't substitute for, for the deep humanity of what kids get when they study history and then talk about it. Yeah, yeah, and, and expose their responses, their reactions to it, to one another. Right. And begin to learn about one another. Begin to learn how to have a constructive exchange. One of the most touching stories I've ever 
heard is one you tell about the father who bathed his yes. infant, and then he had another child to yes. bathe years later. How did that go? I forget. Well, I was I was talking to people about sort of how, you know, the the change in technology had affected their lives, and one one guy said, you know, I I think you're right. I I have these two daughters, and and one was in the pre iPhone years. And uh, I used to love giving her a bath. She used to have these little toys, her little guys in the bath, and used to sit, and we used to tell stories, and bath time was a time for conversation. Mm -hmm. And now I have a two-year-old, and I give her a bath too. That's like my job in the distribution of labor in the house. And I put her in the bath, and I make sure she's safe, and I put down the seat on the toilet, and I take out my iPhone, and I just do my email while she takes her bath. This is, it takes the breath out of me to hear that, to have a kid, and, a little kid that you can get a world of pleasure from, right. and you take out your iPhone. But does he at least recognize that that's and, something to move away from? Well, in, in other words, he, it, it was an unfolding conversation in which the conversation did not begin with him kind of on my side. You know, it was, mm -hmm. it was more like, oh, Sherry Turkle again. You know, <laughs> are you back? Are you back with your... <laughs> I'm back pitching your woo, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, but then he, I said, well, what's an example? And you know, it's not my my method of interviewing is pretty conversational. I said, well, just you know, what's an example from your life? And then he had no trouble. He came right up with it. Came right up with so it. Did you get any indication he saw his? Well, he absolutely. He said, you know, I think you're right. You know, he said, oh. and but it was interesting. He said, the damage is to me and my relationship with her. Yeah. It's not just what I'm doing to her. It's 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 Both what I'm missing because I yeah. remember I I remember that this that those hours we spent together with the with the with the girl before the iPhone um with the daughter before the iPhone really are the basis of our relationship. And then there was another dad who took who 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 um who was divorced and and his greatest you know, the thing he wanted to do most was go on school trips with his daughter until he realized that on the bus on the school trip, mm. all he did was either take pictures of her and put them on Instagram and take pictures of her and upload them to the Facebook. I mean, his entire school bus trip and his entire, you know, time with he her. He wasn't experiencing No, it, it wasn't. It, so it has to do with presence that I think that, that, that what the phone does uh, at its sort of at its worst, is is take us away from this, give us an alternative to 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 presence. It's so interesting you say that because I, while while you were talking, I was thinking, I've so much enjoyed our conversation, and it wasn't so much the words we said; it was the presence that we yeah. experienced in one another. I mean, I see it in your face, and it makes me happy to see it. Yeah, and I wouldn't get that in a text message. I'm not going to do any more conversations by text. <laughs> Before we go, we do seven quick questions at the end oh, of Oh, like every... the Proust interview? Oh, sure. Yeah. If it's okay. We oh, of course. Seven, seven quick answers. And they're, they're basically related in some way to communication. So first question, what do you wish you really understood? The, the relationship between attention and empathy. Hmm. What do you wish other people understood about you? Uh, 
that I'm not a Luddite. <laughs> How much I love my iPhone. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Do you want to have sex with a robot? <laughs> Was this a robot speaking at the time? Or what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's one directly related to uh, communication. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Are you doing it now? <laughs> I'm thinking that I, 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 I um, uh, this is a toughie. Um, uh, do you stop? Do you try to stop a compulsive talker? Uh, I kind of, I, um, in my personal life, yes. In my professional life, not so much. Mm. Um, in my personal life, I say, let me tell you something about my day. <laughs> <laughs> Just right out there. Yeah. I, sometimes I think they need to be slapped down a little. <laughs> but but yeah. in, my, in my professional life, I've got to say, I, 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 sometimes I listen to my interviews and I do let them go on. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Uh, I can feel empathy and deep hatred. I think, I mean, I think that you can feel, you can get into an empathic state where you understand and can walk in their shoes and then deeply disapprove. Yeah, yeah. And hate. Right. So, so saying that there's no one you can't feel empathy for it doesn't mean you agree no, with him. No, Hitler. You, I mean, I think I yeah, got the picture. Sure, exactly. Yeah, I can see that. So to me, empathy isn't like a feel-good. I mean, maybe other people see it that way. But to me, empathy is not like a feel-good. At the end of it, you're not in a like, happy place. It's not place. touchy-feely. It's not a happy place at the end. It's like you can feel empathy and say, and then I despise this. I despise it. I denounce it. Uh, you know, so to me, I, empathy I, I, is a methodology. I read a story once about a prize fighter who was winning fights well into his 50s because he was figuring out what the other person was thinking mm -hmm. and about to do next and mm -hmm. use that knowledge not yeah. to make friends with them, but to knock them out. Yeah. You know, I mean, knowing where the other person is doesn't mean you agree with them right. or, or you lessen your struggle against them. Right. I would think. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Bad news. Uh, definitely in person is best. Yeah, we all know that. How do you like to do it? <laughs> Everybody wants to do it by text. <laughs> but in person is the yeah. only way. Okay. Last question. But everybody wants to do it by text. <laughs> yeah, right. Or, <laughs> but it's, it's a, that's just the human, you know, that's the human desire. But that's what I write about is like pull yourself together and at least yeah. make a call. I kind of thought I knew what the answer yeah, to that right. would be. Last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Betrayal. Hmm. Significant betrayal. Hmm. Well, I've had a wonderful time talking Me with you. Me too. Thank you. That was so much fun. Thanks for coming in. It's been my pleasure. Oh, no, I wanted you. Can I, want, I think I have a better answer for the end. Oh, good. Okay. So the, the last question, um, what, if anything, would make you end a friendship? If I found out the person was a robot. <laughs> If you just find out at the last minute, maybe they've been pretty successful. Maybe, but it would just be a deal breaker. I've met a few robots in my <laughs> life. 
This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Sherry Turkle has spent the last 30 years researching the psychology of our relationship with technology. She's the Abby Rockefeller Mose Professor of Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT, and she's the founding director of the Initiative on Technology and Self, a center of research and reflection on the evolving connections between people and artifacts. Her New York Times bestseller, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk and the Digital Age, focuses on the importance of conversation in digital cultures. Her previous book, Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other, describes technology's influence on relationships between friends, lovers, parents, and children, and new instabilities in how we understand privacy, community, intimacy, and even solitude. You can find her TED Talk on YouTube and find out more about Sherry on her website at sherryturkle.com. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Sarah Vowell. Sarah's unique and quirky take on both American history and modern life involves a ruthless attitude toward writing. One really simple trick to, you know, work on this as writers is I read everything aloud that I write. And if I'm reading something aloud and I'm bored with something I've just written, obviously the reader will be too. And so then I start cutting that stuff. Never boring in her writing and certainly not in our conversation. Sarah Vowell, next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Listen.